So today we're going to continue on our journey by looking at a passage in three parts. First, we're going to look at the nature of our stories. We're going to look back at Galatians. The nature of our stories. The second is the nature of grace. What does grace look like? We'll continue to look at this word throughout our study together. And then finally, how grace changes our stories. So the nature of our stories the nature of grace, and then how grace changes our story. So, I'm going to read for us from Galatians 1, verses 13 to 24. Here's what Paul writes to this church in Galatia. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him fifteen days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of the Lord that I am not lying in what I write to you. Afterwards, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean church, churches that are in Christ. They just simply kept hearing, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is God's word. My expectation is that he would just start with some hardcore theology. That's what he's going to come out with, doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. But that is not actually the way he starts. Notice what he does here. He starts with his story. And he's saying my people and their story and my story, the way that I've lived within Judaism, really matter to theologizing, to my understanding of grace. What he's saying is that grace is always embodied within a people and within a story. And this is a direct challenge to those of us who are bounded set type Christians, because much of conservative bounded set Christianity looks at the Bible as if it's going to give us these eternal boundaries, these internal statements that transcend all culture and tell us 2,000 years later exactly how we should organize ourselves and, and about everything that we believe. And what we do is we take those things, we boil all of Scripture down, or we try to, into something that we can kind of turn and bend into a ring that makes a statement of faith and creates a boundary for us. This is one way of thinking about the Bible and about Christianity, and it's called Biblicism. I don't know if you've ever heard this statement. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's kind of this way of thinking. Now, there's some good about this. It takes the Bible super seriously, which is something that we want to do today, too, in our our community, that we want to listen to what God has to say through his word. But there's also a lot of assumptions built into this about how the Bible works and what the Bible is. For example, that we should take this library of scripture, which is 66 different books written by many different people over hundreds of years, and we should be able to boil it down, basically, into a pamphlet. Or... That the Bible, which contains many different stories, and Paul is trying to tell us here that grace, the story of God, is situated within his story, should be able to be boiled down and written out in, in propositions, in statements. Now, I want to be really clear. I do think the Bible, again, I want to give it authority in our community. I think that it's supposed to have that and, and have authority in my life. And I think it does speak very clearly and univocally on certain things, on a few things. For example, Paul has said, and the New Testament says again and again, that the way to become truly human is to put this Jesus that we see in the middle of our community, in the middle of our lives, this Jesus who has lived and he's died and he's resurrected and he's reigning and ruling, that we put him in the middle and that we as people take on his life, that we take on this pattern of dying 
and rising with him. Paul never deviates from that. And so I don't want to become fuzzy on that either, and I don't think we should. But the biblicist approach also fails to see that our stories and our histories and our cultures and the the things that we hope in, our vision of the good life and the places that we've been hurt and, and the things that have, the stories that we've lived in and the places of trauma that we come from, all of these things, all of these things influence how we approach God's word. And Paul is, is joining us in that by saying, my story matters. He's putting his story out there first and foremost. And this means that each of our stories matter too. Every one of the stories that we come in here, and they're, all, they're going to be very, very different depending on who we are and where we've come from. Those stories matter. And so we need to learn to share our stories and understand our stories as part of the job of theologizing, of learning how to follow Jesus and being a community together. So, how does Paul describe his story? Well, he starts by talking about his larger cultural story. That's what he says. You've heard about my former way of life in Judaism. Now, like all of us, Paul is born into a culture and a society that sets a vision of the good life, that tells you what the good life looks like, what you should hope for, what you should move towards. In religious language, we would say it defines what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. In other words, we could also say that what his culture does and what every culture does is it creates boundaries. It tells you what to hope for, what to live towards, and then what to be against, who's in and who's out. Now, two things to notice about Paul's culture that are really important for us today. The first is that it's a collective culture. It's a collective culture. And that means it's much more concerned with the group orientation than any individual. And some of us understand this because we come from collective cultures. So in Paul's culture, preserving Jewish identity was really, really important. That was a very important thing. Now, there's lots of social boundaries for the Jewish people. Let me just give you a few of what they are. The first is this. What you eat is really important in Jewish culture. You may have heard this term, eating kosher. So there's things that they eat, and then there's things that they don't eat. And that defines who's in and who's out. Secondly, not only what you eat, but who you eat with is very, very important. Because eating with people is extending friendship with them. And so if people who are outside, if you eat with them, if they're unclean, as they might say in Jewish culture, you might become unclean. And this is not just true of Jewish culture, it's true of almost any culture at the time. And we'll get more into these practices of eating together and what they meant in their culture. So what you eat, who you eat with, and I'll give you one more, which is circumcision. This is a really important practice within the Jewish culture. We're going to be talking about it a lot in the next few weeks, so make sure to invite all your friends. I know that they're really excited about this topic, just like you and I are. Um, So it's a collective culture, and there's these boundaries that keep people in and out. The second thing is that it's an honor-shame culture. That's the primary tool for keeping the boundaries, is honor and shame. Again, some of us come from these types of cultures that are primarily honor and shame. Others do not. So honor and shame are just the way that you reinforce the boundaries of who's in and who's out. So you give people honor that are keeping the the practices and and what it means to be a good Jewish person in this culture. You honor them. You lift them up. In Jewish terms, they might call that person a righteous person, a person who's in good standing with the community. And then you use shame for those who are outside. You shame them in order to bring them back in. So... That's, that's uh, Paul's culture. And now our cultures, like for Paul, like for each of us, they make up the sandbox and the limits of how our personalities, thank you, can play out. 
So we have this cultural story, and it creates something, if you want to think of it like a sandbox, it creates a sandbox for how our personalities, who we are, actually play out. So what's Paul's personality? Let's look at verse 14. He said, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. So this is Paul. He's an intense dude. He's probably not an Enneagram 9, if you guys are familiar with the Enneagram. That's the peacemaker. Okay, Paul's not just like coming in to make peace. He's probably an Enneagram 8, the challenger. Okay? He's intense. He's not going to hold back from tell you, telling you what he thinks. He's a man, as he says, full of zeal. And Paul's zeal, the personality that he has, is given direction by his cultural story. There's lots of stories of zeal told in their culture, but let me just highlight one that you may be familiar with. In the Hebrew scriptures, there's a story of this guy named Phineas. He's Aaron's son. And uh, Phineas observes people uh, breaking, breaking the rules of what it means to be a good Jewish person. There's a Jewish man, and he's sleeping with a Midianite woman. And if you know something about Jewish culture, this was bad. You don't marry those who are outside of your community. And so Phineas is also a person full of zeal. So what he does is he takes his spear, and while these two people are together, he rams his spear through both of them, killing them. And it says that this act of zeal actually atoned for the sin in the community. We may be disgusted by that, and that's fine. But in Paul's community, that story was lifted up. It was told generation after generation after generation. This is how zealous Jewish people act. And so Paul's story plays out within that cultural story, his personality. So verse 13 says this, I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. So Paul says, I'm Jewish, I'm Jewish, sorry, I'm zealous. And the circumstances of his life, which is the third part, but we're not going to focus on it today. The circumstances of his life show that people, there is this new way of thinking that around this new rabbi named Jesus. But what Paul perceives is people becoming un-Jewish. And so as a zealous person, what he does is he persecutes those people. He tries to shame them. He tries to stop them from being un-Jewish or becoming un-Jewish and, and at the same time giving himself honor. He opposes the Christian movement. Now, before I go on, I just need to pause here, even though this is a bit of a sidebar, but I was praying about it last night and I think I need to keep it in. Because we may be feeling rightly repelled by Paul's actions. You might be like, that's terrible. And then we might take that, like Paul was a terrible human being, and we might take that and we might broaden it even to his cultural context and say like, boy, this Jewish context, this whole Jewish thing is actually terrible. They were mobilizing people to kill others. And unfortunately, this has happened in the past and people have taken passages like this and said, let's persecute Jewish people. They're, they're not good. This is called anti-Semitism. Now we'll talk about this more as we go on, but Paul is not saying that at all. The problem for Paul is not Jewish culture. He will say every culture sets up boundaries. And that's actually the real issue. It's how we set up and reinforce boundaries at every culture in every, every world. So for Paul, the, the problem, I just want to be really clear, is not Judaism. It's something a lot deeper. So back to Paul and his story. He's a, I want to just point this out for us, that Paul is amazingly aware of his culture and his personality, and how those things have brought him to his present moment. He's saying that part of his journey in following Jesus and receiving grace is actually knowing his cultural story and knowing himself and understanding how those things have shaped who he is. Another way of saying it is that for Paul, knowing ourselves is part of the spiritual journey. 
And so here's a question for each of us. Do you know how you're shaped by your cultural story and your personality? And can you narrate those things? Now, now in our culture, uh, we might or we might think in, in here, how do we actually learn that? How do we learn to, to become people how, that are familiar with our stories? Because our stories are kind of like water. They're just the water we swim in, and, and we don't know any better. So how do we learn that? Well, one of the things we do in our culture is that we go to counseling. And I'm for counseling. I'm not against counseling. My friend, I was at a conference with him last week, and he wore a shirt that says, I love Jesus, and I also go to counseling. I was like, that's the weirdest shirt. He's like, hey, some people really don't think you can be both of those things. So I'm fine with going to counseling, okay? But, but, for the writers of the New Testament, the number one place that we learn to do this, to understand our stories and narrate them, is actually within the community of faith. That's where we need to learn how to do these things. It's in relationships with other people who are also willing to put Jesus at the center and are different than us. Both of those things are key. Putting Jesus at the center and then they're different than us. And that's one of the reasons why we do gospel storytellers. If you're new here, we usually have, we interview someone and they just tell a bit of their story. And part of the hope there is that they're learning to narrate their own story, but also that there are things when they come up and they speak up here that we're like, oh yeah, that's just like me too. But then I also hope that there's things that they come up here and say where you're like, huh, that's weird. Because they're bringing a different story than you. That's the community of faith. And that's how we lean in and learn. We don't lean away in those moments, but we actually lean into relationship to learn that we can learn our own stories and learn grace in a deeper way. Let me just give you an example from my own life, right? Like I said, church is counseling. Here we go. You guys are here. I'll just uh, open up my life to you a little bit. Paul's talking about his life, so I'll talk about mine. I am what they call probably um, diagnostically super cheap. That would be the term, I think, that they would use to describe me. And I've said this before. And my wife is, is super not. Um, cheap. She's the opposite. So, especially early on in our marriage, I would get super frustrated when my wife would overspend, which to me meant she didn't get the best deal on absolutely everything possible. And I would get really frustrated with her, and then she'd be like, why? Why are you so frustrated? And I'd be, I would say to her, like, well, that's a dumb question. It's obvious. Like, being a good person, being a good Christian even, is like not... It's being frugal. It's not spending a lot of money. Like, that's the goal of life, is to save as much money as humanly possible. And I remember one time my wife just looked at me and she's like, that's just really weird. I don't think that at all. And I remember looking back at her and being like, I think I've married an alien. Like, who are you and what, like, what's wrong with you? We, we, we used to watch this show called Arrested Development, and there's this character in there, and he says, I've made a tiny, huge mistake. And that's how I felt at this moment. I'm like, I've made a tiny, huge mistake. Um, and the views of our money in our marriage have been probably one of the biggest sources of conflict for us. Uh, and I can go to the Bible and I can pull out all these passages. And I'm like, here's why we should be frugal. Like, there's like 20 of them just in Proverbs by itself. Okay? But here's what I've realized by sticking with my wife through, I think, 15, almost 16 years now. My view on money is actually shaped way less by the Bible than it is by my family of origin. So my, my dad's dad, my grandpa, my dad calls him a playboy. That's what he, the word he uses to describe him. He took all of their family's money and he would spend it on booze, on women, on gambling. And my dad can tell me time after time where he, him, his, his, his brothers and sisters would just be starving. 
So one of the ways that my dad showed love to me and my family is by living an extremely simple life. He didn't spend money on anything in order to make sure that we always had enough. He wasn't getting us to live a very frivolous life, but he always wanted to be sure that we had enough and that he wasn't like my grandfather. And of course, that that played out in my story. My mom's mom is a Mennonite, which is probably enough said, right? She's just cheap. But I remember very, very specifically as a kid, so we would go to Manitoba and we would visit my grandma. We'd be sitting on these hot summer days in her kitchen. And sometimes she would go into the fridge, she would take a knife, and she would cut a piece of butter. And then she would just, in front of us, just start eating it. I know, right? And you know as a kid where you're like, old people are weird. That was like one of those moments. But also we're like, is grandma like, is she still okay? But then she would narrate her story to us. My grandma lived in Germany during World War II. She escaped. She wasn't a combatant. She was just a person who lived there. And she said to me, You know, we would go months without butter. We would go months without salt and sugar. And so sometimes I just remember, I have that in the fridge. And I feel like the luckiest person in the world. And so I go get a little bit. That was her vision of like being frivolous, being a little wild. And of course, that filters into my mom. And it filters into my life. That's why I say double cheap. It's coming from both directions in my life. But it's not actually, for me, it was a huge value, but it's not actually a biblical thing at all. It's just my family's story. You see? And that's part of my cultural story. And my wife has her own cultural story, which is different. And you, you can ask her and she can tell it to you. But we each have our own. And that's why it's so, excuse me, so important that we learn to narrate these stories. And learn to be around people who are different. Because sometimes it's the things that we put in the middle that we think are supreme values, that we think are actually gospel things. It turns out they're not. They're just part of my family's story. And Paul has his own story, too. He's a zealous Jewish man. But something happens that changes Paul's story. He receives grace, which he calls a gift. We talked about this last week. And there's three elements that I want to focus on in this gift that Paul receives that changes his story for him. Okay, verse 15. He says, but when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart. So he's saying to to us, God initiated something in his life. God is the initiator of this, giving this gift. The technical language here is it's prevenient grace. God moves first and gives the gift of grace first. And then he says, God called me by his grace. Now, God doesn't give grace to Paul because he's a good Jewish person, even though he is. Like he said, I'm surpassing everybody else. But that's not the reason that God gives grace to Paul. Paul, he said, he gave it to me already when I was in my mother's womb, before I was a really, really outstanding and honored person in my society. But God also doesn't withhold grace from Paul because he's killing God's people. It's neither of those things. And the Bible is really clear that what we do and what we don't do, they matter. They matter in our life and in our world. But that's not the basis on how we receive grace. In technical language here, it's saying that God's grace is incongruous. Incongruous. It is not congruent with what we have or what we don't have. God doesn't look at us like the rest of the world does. In Paul's society, he should be honored. That doesn't really matter to God. Maybe in our eyes, Paul should be shamed for his actions. That doesn't really matter to God. God gives grace regardless. Regardless. 
So God is the prevenient giver. He's the first giver. He gives incongruously, not, in, not according to how much social capital we have or don't have. But it's also, grace is also efficacious is the word, the technical word. That God's grace, this gift is given in order to create an effect in our lives. To make a change in our lives. And that's what Paul says. That God was, reve- was pleased to reveal his son in me so that, that there's always a so that, so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. God's grace has changed Paul's life. Now, how? Let's talk about three ways here as we close. How has grace changed Paul's life, and what is the invitation for each of us? The first is that grace relativizes Paul's cultural story. Grace relativizes Paul's cultural story and all of our cultural stories. So Paul is still a Jew, and we'll see that as he continues on in his story. He's still a Jew. He doesn't stop being a Jewish person. But the bounded set of what it means to be Jewish... That vision of what is good and what is bad. Who's in and who's out. Those things that wake Paul up, like many of us, you know, we, we wake up in the morning and we look in the mirror and we, we know we're okay because of this. Or we feel shame because of that. Those things in Paul's life are not as important anymore. They're relativized. They become decentered because Paul has received something much greater in the middle, which is Jesus. Maybe you want to think of it this way. Before Paul had invested all of his capital in being a good Jewish person, he advanced beyond everyone else, but now there's been a market crash. And Paul is still a Jew, he's still got some investments there, but his cultural identity has been relativized by the gospel, and now his investments are fully in Jesus, not his cultural story. I kept that in, even though some of us may be smarting from the crypto crash here. But I thought it was relevant, right? You're going to keep things relevant here. Okay. Again, so let me, let me relate it to my story. So that's Paul's story, that Jesus comes in and the things that created the boundaries for Paul get dropped. They're still there, but the new centering thing is on Jesus. Again, so let me, let me relate it to my story. Again, I come from a frugal culture. My wife does not. And she challenged me. What she did when she came into my life and in, in my life is that she challenged the boundaries that my culture has set up. Now, I had a few options. The first is that we could break our relationship off. We could basically get divorced. And we never got down to that far down the road, but we definitely had some moments where we're like, what are we doing here? Can we get over these different boundaries that we bring? The second thing is that I could change and become like her. Okay? Which is really, really tough to do when you're also very stubborn. Which is, that's my personality. But we won't get into, I'll save that one for real counseling. (laughs) The third thing we could do is that I could just be like, you know what, you do you. I'll do me. That's basically fuzzy set thinking. No boundaries, separate bank accounts. You do you, I'll do me. But we didn't think that that was a very good way to partner together. So what I, the last option and what I did do is I doubled down on my own culture. I just raised the boundaries even higher. And I made it very clear, conveniently, that I was on the inside. I was a person worthy of honor. And my wife found herself on the outside as a person of shame. Let me tell you, it didn't make for a super healthy marriage. But here's where the real change came for me in two things. One is, like I said, being around my wife and learning how to narrate my story and letting us narrate our stories together, getting to know her family and just seeing her family is unbelievably generous. It's not like they have a crazy amount of money, but they're just so generous. And that moved me and that changed me, just getting involved with another person in their story. But the second thing was this. 
I remember it very clearly. I was preparing a Bible study on Luke 15, which is a story, if you're familiar with it, it's called The Prodigal Son. I'll give you a little synopsis in case you've never heard of it. There's a story about a, a father and two sons, and the younger son comes to the father and says, hey, give me my inheritance now. Basically, which is in that culture, it's like saying, I wish you were dead. The father grace, graciously gives him a huge gift. He says, I'll liquidate half my assets. I give it to you. The son says, thank you very much. Takes off. Classic story. Just goes and parties. Wastes all his money. At some point, he realizes like he's living in squalor. All his friends have left him. So he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to my father's house. At least there, I'll have like a warm bed. I could just be like a servant in this place. So he's shamed. And he's practicing the shame routine the whole way back. I'm going to come back. I'm going to see my dad. And I'm just going to say, I'm so sorry. Would you make me like a servant? The father runs out and meets him on the road. And one of the things that has moved me about this story the whole time, as a person who understands shame, is the father doesn't speak to the son at all. He speaks to everybody else. And he just says, come, honor my son. I give this boy honor. Bring, bring my ring. Bring my robe. Kill the fatted calf. Let's throw a huge party. Because my son is here. Later on in the story, there are the other brothers there. And the other brothers have just been serving the whole time. And he leaves the party. So they're throwing this huge party for the son, honoring this person who should be shamed. And the, the brother, the older brother, leaves and goes outside, which is putting shame on the father in that culture. That's what he's doing. And the father goes outside, which is walking into that story of shame. And he says to the older son, all I have is yours. But this is the line that kills me. He said, but we had to celebrate. We had to celebrate because your brother is home. And I realized that that was not my heart whatsoever. That I had no I, like, conception in my mind of what that looked like for me. That this, this kind of, that's the, the character of God. That God just is a God who's like, at some points, we just have to celebrate. There's nothing better that we can do. And that wasn't in my mind. And so, but as soon as I saw that in that passage, it was just on tumble dry. And I would see it as I read other parts of scripture. I remember reading the Gospel of John. It's probably my favorite book in the Bible. Is it because I share the same name as it? I don't know. This is what I talk about in counseling. Okay? But the first story, the way that John introduces Jesus in that, in that, uh, in that book is not by finding like a kid who's dying and then healing them. It's not through going to some war and causing peace. What he does is he goes to a party that's kind of like men, and he gives them a whole bunch of wine and makes it amazing. And he says, by doing that first, he's saying like, this is my business card. This is how I want you to know me. This is the kind of God I am. I'm the God who brings the party huge challenge to me. I would read then in Revelation that this is the kind of God that we have, the God that when, when we meet him face to face, whatever that all looks like, that he wants to throw a huge feast for us. That's the first thing that we'll do is we'll sit down and we'll eat with him and we'll eat with each other and we'll fuel up, it says, for the healing of the world. It's this beautiful, amazing picture, but that wasn't something that I had in my mind. And the deeply, deeply disturbing thing about all that is that God looks way more like my wife than me. It didn't look like me at all. I'm free to throw a potluck. We can all bring a little something to that. I'm down with that. That's good Mennonite styles. She's free to throw a party. She's free to just give lavishly. And that really deeply challenged me. And I realized this. My family's story is not wrong. My parents showed me love in the deepest ways, but it's incomplete. And what I needed was somebody different to come in. 
who loved Jesus but was going to challenge my story in order for me to be able to see grace. And I needed for this gift of grace and God to reorganize my story, to relativize my family's story. And I'm so grateful for that. But I had to allow grace to pull down those boundaries that I built over my life and reorganize how I looked at the world. How about you? Have you allowed grace to radically reorganize the story that you come from? That's the invitation. Grace reorganizes our stories. The second is that grace reorganizes us. Paul, again, he's a zealous person. That's who he is. Grace doesn't change his personality. He doesn't go from being an Enneagram 8 to an Enneagram 9. He's not like this zealous dude, and then all of a sudden he's like this meek little kitten. That's like, I don't know, whatever everybody wants, right? It reorganizes and redirects the personality that he already has. He goes from persecuting, it says, to preaching. It's still zeal. It's still boldness. He's the same guy, but there's a change in the eye in who he is. The grace changes how that zeal takes shape in his life. And that's the same for each of us. You're still you when you receive grace. But when we receive grace, Christ's story becomes primary and we're no longer the main actors. And it reshapes how you do you for each of us if we're going to put Jesus in, in the center. And that's a huge challenge to those of us who are fuzzy set people. Because our culture just tells us, just you do you. Do whatever you want. It's all okay. And the gospel says who you are is really important. Your story totally matters. You are unique. But our story finds our shape within a community of people who are going to put Jesus at the center. That that's going to become the main story. It's not you do you, it's us do us. Centered in and around the person of Jesus. Again, to reflect my own story, you know, I for years have prided myself on being a frugal person and a self-made person. And that became part of my identity. It became part of the way that I received honor in the world, maybe even only from myself. I remember a friend said to me once, he's like, you're a super frugal dude. And I was like, thank you. He's like, it's not a compliment, though. I didn't mean it as a compliment at all. But in some way, I was receiving honor from that story. And I realized that I was just living in a very bounded set way, that my focus became on proving that I was the person the closest to the center. I was the frugalist of the frugal. I'm in and other people are out. But when grace has entered, and I don't want to make it sound like it was a moment in time, as grace continues to enter into my life, I open myself up to receiving other people and their stories. And that we need each other. I need them. I need you guys to become decentered. I'm not the hero of the story. Jesus is in the center. And so I don't have to be the person in there grasping for honor anymore. I can just be one person who's coming in and around Jesus and bringing my story and inviting other people to do the same. What about you? Is grace radically reorganizing your eye, who you are as a person? And as a sidebar, like I said, this takes time. Paul just has a quick throwaway things where he says three years, and then he says 14 years. He's talking about like a long journey where our cultural stories and who we are as people become slowly reshaped as we take the time to be around each other. They don't happen on warp speed, but here's the great news. If we commit ourselves to this way of living and being, there's a great and amazing promise. And this is the last point. That received grace, that transforms our stories, results in glorification. That grace that transforms our story results in glorification of God. Here's what Paul says. Afterwards, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. They simply kept hearing, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. This is the goal. And you know, 
if this series is just like a fun mental exercise in us finding out a new way of doing church, something fun and different, so that we can go to other people and other churches and be like, you're bounded, but we're centered. And then they're like, what? And you're like, you're so bounded, you don't even get it. You don't even understand what's going on. If that's what we get from this, then I'm very sorry and we're just completely missing the point. That's not what this is about. Because there's a greater hope and a greater person that we can put in the middle than us and our church. And the great news here is if we commit ourselves, I think, to this idea and this way of living with Jesus at the center, and we commit to pointing our arrows at him and listening to each other's stories and narrating our stories and not living out of fear, but living out of a place of humility and listening and pointing at Jesus. And we allow grace to transform who we are, not only as individuals, but as a community, then people will see Jesus through us. That's the great hope. I love what Paul says, they glorified God because of me. He starts with saying we glorify him by putting him in the middle, but the amazing opportunity is that the God of the universe actually wants to be seen through us, to be glorified through us. And I don't know about you, but that's my great hope, that my life and our lives would in some small way just become a testimony of this glorious God would be something that reflects like light into our world, to my friends, to my family members, to our co-workers, to our neighbors, this weighty gift that has happened in Jesus Christ. So that's the invitation of this whole series. And that's where we want to become. That's who we want to become. That's where we're headed. And so my question to you is, is like, are you open to that? Would you join us as people who put God in the middle? We narrate our stories and we allow grace to just transform us so that we might in some way reflect this glory. Thank you.